you notice that third verse in uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem? Um, you know, come to us, abide in us. It stops talking about Bethlehem. Bethlehem drops out of the song. Instead, it talks about now. It talks about 2014, almost 2015. It talks about our hearts. It's as if the first part of the song is remembrance and sets us up for the second part of the song, which is anticipation. Advent. Christ coming. Not just has come, but is come. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. If you notice that, it's not has come, although sometimes it gets changed to that, but originally it was is come. The Lord is come. He is come. It's present tense and it's future also. He's coming. Let every heart prepare him room, not just, you know, 2,000 years ago, but right now in the season of Advent. In fact, if you think about the words of the songs we sing at Christmas, they almost all have this dynamic, looking back and looking forward. This is the first part of a small two-part series Neil and I are doing, Songs of Christmas. We're going to be looking at the way we sing, or at least this week, the way they sung, and think about the implications for that as we sing, as we look back to the birth of Christ and look forward to his coming again. This message is titled, The Danger of begging God to come. Uh, if you have your note sheets, uh, it's not. It's just. It's just the text. Please stand. We're going to read Psalm seventy-four to, together. This is a Christmas psalm, although that might be a little bit surprising to you as we read. So please stand, and we'll read it together. It's a little bit long. If you uh, want to take a seat in the middle, go for it. In fact, really, go when it, when things get violent, and they are going to get violent. You might want to take a rest. That's the time to do it. So this is um, this this translations from uh, the Common English Bible, and I've made some changes. This is just to make it as easy to um, receive as possible. Uh, this is a song of Asaph, his instruction. God, why have you abandoned us forever? Why does your anger smolder at the sheep of your own pasture? Remember us. Be mindful of your congregation that you took as your own long ago that you redeemed to be the tribe of your own possession. Remember Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple where you dwell. March, God, march to the unending ruins, to all that the enemy destroyed in the sanctuary. Your, Your enemies roared in your own meeting place. They set up their own signs or icons there. It looked like axes raised against a thicket of trees. And then all its carvings they smashed with hatchets and cleavers. They set fire to your sanctuary, burned it to the ground. They violated the place where your name had settled. They said in their hearts, we'll kill all of them at once. They burned all God's meeting places in the land, all the synagogues, all the places of worship. We don't see our own signs, or you might even think of them as crosses anymore. There's not even a prophet left. 
and none of us know how long it will last. How long, God, will the adversary insult you? Are enemies going to abuse your name forever? Why do you pull your hand back? Why do you hold your strong hand close to your chest? But God, my king of old, bringer of salvation in the heart of the earth, you were the one who parted the sea with your power. You shattered the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed Leviathan's heads. You made it food for a company of wildcats. You split open streams and springs. You made perennial rivers dry right up. The day belongs to you. The night too. You established both the moon and the sun. You set all the boundaries of the earth in place. Summer, winter, you shaped them. So remember this, God. The enemy has taunted Yahweh. Unbelieving fools have abused your name. Don't deliver the life of your dove, Israel, to wild animals. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Consider the covenant. Remember it. Because the land's dark places are full of violence. The broken must not live in shame any longer. No, let the poor and needy praise your name. God, rise up. Make your case. Be mindful of how unbelieving fools insult you all day long. Don't forget the voices of your enemies, the racket of your adversaries that just doesn't quit. You may be seated. Christmas. Right? I mean, here it is. Oh, goodness. This, uh, this psalm, um, and maybe you detected it as, you were, as we were reading through, but this psalm, we, it's one of the ones that we can really kind of pinpoint in time. We know the history of this psalm pretty well. Um, the psalmist um, Asaph, or one of his students, uh, someone in his school of, of psalm writing, has, has, um, has looked at what's just happened. And not just happened, but maybe happened about 30 years in the past. And it's that God's sanctuary has been burned to the ground. This is Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple in 586 BC was uh, burned to the ground. The Babylonians came in. They, uh, and I mean, the imagery, right? They came in, it was like they were woodsmen with axes just swinging through a forest of trees. And that's what they did to the temple of God, where God lives, where his Shekinah glory sets. This is God's house. And the people of Babylon have come in and just wiped it out. And then they burned to the ground. They weren't done. Then they went throughout the land. They found any place where people were still worshiping God. They burned that too. And if you read in Jeremiah 52, um, also I think it's in... First Kings? I can't remember. Second Kings. Um, there's the, the, the tale of what exactly happens. Uh, King, I think it's Zedekiah at the time, is cramped in Jerusalem. The Babylonian armies swarm over uh, the walls, and they, they first they murder his family in front of him so that he knows he will never have an heir. And then with their thumbs, they gouge out his eyes so he'll never see again. And so the last thing that he sees is the end of God's covenant with his people. Then the Babylonians take the people of Israel, not all of them, but uh, we're told the elites and also some of the poor, and they're, they're drawn off to the capital, Babylon, and there they live in exile. And every day, day after day, the enemies come and insult them. You fools! You fools! You know who God is? God is Marduk. How can you sit there and keep praying to this God who abandoned you? If anything, God's taken our side. He's, he's with us now. 
If there is a Yahweh, then he's a Babylonian friend, not a Jewish friend. And so we, we, we find out now, uh, not only has God allowed these awful things to happen, but God hasn't even raised up a prophet. There's no prophets left. You notice um, in, in verse uh, 8 or 9. And uh, that phrase that follows it, no prophet is left, and none of us know how long it will last, that actually could be, and I've chosen this, but I mean, the Hebrew is very obscure. It could actually be, uh, and no one knows how long we have left. There's no prophet to tell us how long this is going to go on, right? Because God, you're not speaking to us anymore. Not only have you utterly destroyed your people, but you won't even say a word. You're silent. And the whole time they're telling us how dumb we are. And so we know that probably 20, 30 years have passed. Probably the, the first generation, the exilic generation, has died in captivity. And it's their children, possibly their grandchildren, who are writing this poem, singing this song to God as they yearn to go back home and to see God's temple restored. Uh, actually, just as a, as a note, um, this prayer gets answered. Interestingly enough, this is a prayer. Psalm 74, God, why have you abandoned? Are you going to abandon us forever? The answer is no, it turns out. And God does come. Um, he uses Cyrus of Persia to uh, take out Babylon. Very cool story. We have it from uh, Herodotus. And we don't know if he's right or not, but what he said is that the Babylonians, or the Persians come up, Cyrus's people come up to Babylon and they have a big, a big moat that's protected Babylon. And Babylon knows that they're coming, so they've stored up a whole bunch of provisions. They're ready to wait out a siege for up to three years. And uh, so uh, per, uh, Cyrus from Persia is like, man, I got other battles to fight. I really want to take these guys out. What am I going to do? And so he uh, actually digs a bunch of canals uh, from the Euphrates so that the, um, the moat like sinks down. Um, and then his guys just kind of walk across. <laughs> and then they just walk in the gates. And all the Babylonians are like, well... That didn't work. And, <laughs> and then he says, yeah, um, time to execute your king, because that's what we do, and chops his head off and puts his guy in front. Yeah, very, very cute, uh, the way that worked out. So yeah, this psalm, about, f- about 540 uh, B.C., and, and, and the, the people of God are crying out to God. Uh, some interesting things about uh, this text. You notice that there's that weird, um, when, when, when we read Psalms, we expect uh, someone to start talking about, God, you're good, right? Um, and, and maybe a, a, an expression of trust. This song doesn't exactly uh, have that, but it does have that, that spectacular set of verses, 12 through 17, where the psalmist focuses on three different times when in the past, God showed up. And the first one that uh, the psalmist is reminded of is when um, God takes the people out of, of slavery in Egypt. You were the ones who parted the sea with your power. And then um, earlier on, we, we remember that uh, in verse 2, you redeemed this tribe of Israel to be your own possession. That took them out of, out, of, out of Egypt. God, you showed up. You did amazing things. You had power. You attacked. And, and not only that, we were also drawn to... Um, uh, this is probably drawn from some of the Babylonian uh, myths. They, they talked about Marduk um, beating, uh, crushing the seven heads of Leviathan. 
And, and the, the people are like, that wasn't Marduk. Marduk doesn't do any of that stuff. Marduk's fake. That was you, God. You had the power to subdue all the, the strong creatures of the world, the dragons and the sea monsters. You're able to do these things. You, you didn't just do that, but sometimes we've seen how strong rivers are. You're the one who splits them up and makes them flow. You're the ones who take a trustworthy, a, a trustworthy river and, and dry it right up. You have power over the created universe. Why? Because you created it. The day belongs to you. The night, too. You established this moon and the sun. Set the boundaries of earth in place. Summer, winter, you shaped them. Three, three different times when when God showed up and acted with power. And so the psalmist assumes, God, you need to do that again. You need to show up again and help us get us out of this situation. And so if you were to sum up everything that, that the psalmist is saying, it would be something like, just to choose a random sentence, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Oh God, please come. Come be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Oh God, come. Be with us again. You used to do it. And now where are you? And that is a dangerous, dangerous request. If God really is the God who had the power over the sea dragons, who shaped the summer and the winter, if God really is the, the God that took the people out of Egypt and crushed the armies of Pharaoh, if that's who God is, then begging him to show up is a very risky proposition. Now, like I said, um, you know, they were singing the song in exile, and God listened, heard them, and said, all right, I'm coming. So he brings Cyrus. Cyrus wipes out the Babylonians. The, one of the very first things that Cyrus does, actually, is he sends the Jews back. And we have that, uh, the stories of that in the scriptures in Nehemiah and Ezra. God sends the exiles back home, says, rebuild, have a second temple. All of that stuff, I didn't forget you. When you called out to me, I love in, the, in, in, in this text, uh, three times the psalmist says, be mindful, remember. It's that, it's that kind of you know, drawing God right in to this, this thing. Focus on this. Attend to this. Be present to this, God. And God does. And we get a temple. And the people are good. And the story ends. Everything's perfect, right? No. Not quite. I want you to imagine... Uh, now remember, this is the Psalter. Uh, this is classic. Uh, just a little side note on the history of this text. A lot of people used to think that this text was actually written after the time of Christ and then added back into the Psalter. Uh, because they thought that what it was talking about was um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the second temple. And that's after Jesus um, comes, uh, the Roman Empire destroys the temple. And so a lot of really, really smart scholars, uh, mostly from Germany, thought that, uh, that this was actually um, a, a later psalm. Not so! When we got the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, we found Psalm 74, complete Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, about 1st century BC, maybe um, a little bit later, maybe a little earlier, uh, have Psalm 74. So we know this is about, about um, the first temple. At any rate, um, they get back in, everything's good, but it's not. Problems with Israel again, everybody's, you know, first it's, uh, you know, the Hasmodean dynasty, and then this and that, and finally it's Rome. And so imagine, if you will, we're at approximately A.D. 0, and there is a small group of Jews, and they're singing through the Psalter, and they're at worship, and they come to Psalm 74, 
Imagine what it might, like, might be like for them. Look at the situation they're in, right? The temple has been abandoned. Um, there, are, there are worship and sacrifices there, but it's a corrupt priesthood that does it. Um, not to mention the fact that it's all under the, uh, the thumb of the Roman oppressor. God's been silent. There hasn't been a prophet since Malachi. It's been about 400 years. You notice in that song we, uh, we sang um, by Chris Tomlin. It's been 400 years since God's spoken to his people. God's silence. Again, there's a foreign power oppressing us. It's Rome this time and not Babylon. The, and again, the foreign power mocks the tribal God of Israel. Yahweh? Who's Yahweh? I put my trust in Lord Caesar Augustus. And they, they put that on their coins and they make the people spend those coins. And so again, the people are insulted. God is taken down. Israel strangled from taxation. They're poor and powerless. It's the same story. It's the same story all over again. So this small congregation, they get together on December 24th, AD 0. And they pray this prayer and they cry out to God. They sing it. They chant it. They say, God, look what they've done. It's as if they had axes and smashed your temple. Look what they've done. They've insulted you. They've called you out like you're nobody. God, come, come, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And he does. Right? He does. He, he gets in the chariot. He, the divine chariots come down in fire. And the Roman legions set up, and he uses, uh, in, like in Indiana Jones, the, the god fire from the, a, just blows them away, right? And the, the faithful Jews who are singing this song are, are lifted up, they're put in charge, they clean up the temple, the, the, the work of God is no longer um, corrupted because God shows up. The taxation that's going to the, the Roman Empire, it ends instantly. Instead, all of that money goes into making the second temple like the first temple. Glorious, beautiful, wonderful. God comes back and lives there. He raises up new prophets who speak of his power and might to the nations. No. No, that didn't happen. No, we, we would have heard about that. That would have been awesome. No, no, God, um, God, you know, switched it up. God, I mean, I'm assuming God was listening as they, as they, they prayed this prayer, and He was mindful of their congregation. And then He comes, and what does He do? He exposes them as hypocrites. These, these faithful Jews, these Pharisees, praying this prayer, singing this song, and it's not just them; it's the whole country. All of Israel's sin is exposed. And then, when, when Jesus grows up after the first Christmas, he comes and he finds foreigners who are better lovers and trusters of God than the people themselves. It's worse. Not only does he affirm that he cares for the, the poor and the dispossessed, but he does it at the expense of these faithful worshipers. He, he asks them, no, 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 I want you to devote your resources to my kingdom. The elect are shown to be hypocrites because God doesn't come in blood and fire. He comes as a powerless baby. He comes as a carpenter. 
And when God does that, he lifts up poor shepherds and humiliates great kings. God's power is revealed as powerlessness. A child subject to all the problems and dangers of being a child has to be whisked off to Egypt to avoid execution. God's weakness deals with the problem of sinful hearts, not political empires. There is an exodus, again, but it's an exodus of faith that saves. Friends, we live in a time where, let's just call it what it is. We live in a time where we see uh, over and over uh, the, the influence of Christianity ebbing in the culture at large. Uh, we find ourselves mocked. Um, I tend to enjoy the movies that make fun of me, uh, which, I don't know, that sounds really dumb when I say it out loud, but it's true. I think it's funny sometimes, the, the way that... <laughs> Just praying to your invisible fairy in the sky, right? You fool. Where is your God? Come on, let's get real. We see that over and over. We find ourselves um, sort of hunkered down a little bit in the culture. We find ourselves on the defensive. More and more we feel like, is this really a Christian nation? Or is this a post-Christian nation? And we say, God... Come. Come to us. Abide in us. Oh, come. Oh, come. Emmanuel. One of the interesting things about this psalm, if you look at it, um, it never, it never uh, says um, Why? God has abandoned his people. It always says, how long? Right? God, why have you abandoned us forever? Why does your anger smolder? Why does it keep going? It, it's happening all the It just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. How long? It's never why. Because the psalmist knows why. Right? When the people were carted off to Babylon, it was because Israel was faithless. And so the psalmist's question is, well, okay, that happens. And I get it, but really? This long? Haven't we paid? Zedekiah, he's gone. Our parents are gone. Maybe even our grandparents are gone. Hasn't it been enough now? Isn't it time to show up? I wonder, do we even do we think the same thing when we call out, O come, O come, Emmanuel? When we say joy to the world. You know, our Savior is come. Our Lord is come. Do we, do we say the same thing? Are we, are we really saying, I get it, I understand why, but how long? I wonder if we don't skip over sometimes that issue about who we are. About whether or not God's anger, when it happens, is just. And now it must continue smoldering. I wonder, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not a prophet Thank goodness. Um, so I'm not going to say it, but I wonder. I wonder if the, the waning influence 
of, uh, of our faith in this country, uh, the way that we're mocked incessantly, uh, the way that that happens. I wonder if maybe some of the, the reason is, is because we've been faithless. I wonder if we're saying, God, come make it right, and not ever questioning what happens when God does show up. I wonder if we're saying, God, come please, Jesus, come back. We, and there's, I should note, there's two ways that we say God come. Usually we say, God, come bring revival. That's one way. Another way we say is, God, send Jesus a second time. Finish this nonsense. We say both. But I wonder if we're not skipping over the part that when Jesus came the first time, it was rough. It was rough for the faithful religious folks. I wonder if when we're begging God, oh come, oh come, we're not skipping over the part where God's coming reveals us, oh my gosh, as we actually are. Last thing. We are not called to stop calling God to come. We have to do it. We do need God to come. We need to know what we're asking for. And we need to be ready for when God answers our prayer. <laughs> they, uh, you know, uh, Disney kind of messes with Aladdin and they really clean it up a lot. But really, most of the genie stories um, from the Middle East are, are stories of when someone asks you know, for a wish, and then the genie grants the wish, and it's like, oh, that was terrible. I should never have asked for that. You know, you, the last thing you want is to get what you ask for, right? Because if you do, you find out it comes with all kinds of problems. It's like that, uh, the new Geico commercial where the guy, the genie comes out, and he's like, yes. The genie's like, what's your wish? And he says, a million bucks. And then there's like a million deer. <laughs> like, he's like, oh. oh, what was I asking for? Dollars, dollars, I take it back. Too late. But when we say, God, come, we, we need to do it on the same basis as the psalmist in Psalm 74. Um, you Notice in, in verse 19, don't deliver the life of your dove to wild animals. Interesting, doves uh, at, at the time um, were associated with covenants, right? Um, we even see a little bit when Abraham uh, makes a covenant with uh, Melchizedek or with God in the presence of Melchizedek in uh, Genesis. He releases a number of animals, one of which is a dove. And we have some, uh, some other examples from the ancient Near East where doves are associated with covenants. And, and notice right after in verse 19, don't deliver the life of your dove to wild animals. Don't forget, don't forget the live, lives of your afflicted people forever. Consider the covenant. And at the very beginning... Be mindful of your congregation that you took as your own long ago, that you redeemed to be the tribe of your possession. The psalmist and we, when we're calling out to God, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're calling out God not because we deserve it. We certainly don't. We're calling it out because we have to remind God, be mindful of who you are. You are faithful. That's who you are. At the core of your being is faithful, committed love. Don't stop that. Don't, don't stop being faithfully committed and loving. And remember who you're committed to. You've called us by the power of your spirit into your congregation. We've trusted you, God. We have trusted Jesus for the free gift of eternal life. We are your congregation. You took possession of us. You let us out of the exodus of sin and slavery. And now you've brought us into this new life. You cannot forget us, God. That is the basis upon which we ask God to come. 
It's God's honor that's at stake. God, rise up. Make your case. Be mindful of how unbelieving fools insult you all day long. Those are good things to call out, and we must do it as a people. We have to remind God that he is committed to us faithfully and call out for him to show up. The danger is, is that when he does, will we be the kinds of people who are ready for it? Last story. I don't like talking about this, but every now and again I think it's appropriate. Um, the kids in the youth group know this, so you guys, this is old hat for you. But So when I was in Japan... Uh, 2004, 2005, I was living large, to be honest with you. I had this really amazing house. It was a two-story house um, with the uh, tatami mats and uh, just glass floor to ceiling on the, uh, on the side so that you could look out across the valley. I was living in a, um, in, on a mountain. So I could look out across the valley and see the snow-capped peaks. And I remember um, the winter was... Uh, I really enjoyed winter because, you know, I'd wake up a little bit early, get my... Uh, my, uh, my bathrobe on, my yukata, and uh, get my cup of coffee or green tea, whichever. And I would just stand on the upper balcony. I slept downstairs. I didn't even really use it up there, upstairs, except for in the morning I would go out and step on my balcony and be like, man, yeah, this is great. I mean, this is good. It's at peace. It was clear. And I would just take stock of my life. I mean, wow, what a success, right? I mean, great. I had a wonderful time in college. Um, now I was really having a joyful time in Japan, really... Uh, it, interacting with students, making great friends. You know, I had it all, but I wanted more because it's me. And so I remember praying this prayer. I prayed, God, I want you to do whatever you want with my life. I want you to give me everything you want to give me. Genie, I want a million bucks. See, in my mind, what I was praying for, I was beckoning God to come into my life by the power of the Spirit and give me even more great stuff, maybe even a better job when I went back to the States, um, you know, more money, more popularity, um, all in God's name, of course. Uh, but really just, you know, really build me up. Because I was, I was here, I wanted to get to here, and I just felt like God was a big Santa Claus just ready to pour out his blessings on me. Well, when I got back to the United States of America, about three weeks in, I became obsessive-compulsive, um, sort of late development, got obsessive-compulsive disorder. don't like talking about it a whole lot, but I can just tell you that from about 2005 to 2007, in your midst, I was a quiet sufferer, and most of my days were spent in horrible anxiety. Um, it was a, uh, kind of a dark time for a long period there, but there came a point... Um, where I was up at three in the morning and I looked at what my life had become and I said, God, you answered my prayer. You came and you exposed me for who I really am. I found out that I was as selfish and as narcissistic as everyone else thought and that wasn't good. And I said, God, you may never take this away from me but I understand now what you're asking. And I'm going to live with it. Please, God, give me a million bucks. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's good news, friends. If God does come, I can tell you from my own personal story that he does not leave you in the ditch. He does not leave you out in, uh, in Babylon in exile. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes you find out a lot of things about yourself you don't like. But in the end, when God comes, he comes in power and in forgiveness and in mercy. And he lifts you up from the miry clay and sets you on a rock. That's who God is because God cannot deny himself. Friends, when we call out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we are at risk. It is dangerous. But because of who God is, even if we're not ready, he will be faithful to us and he will make us the kinds of people who are. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, with the psalmist, we ask you to come. Come now, God. In the power of your spirit, come bring revival. Revive this church. Revive Orange County. Bring the passionate fire of your spirit. God, we know that asking for that is dangerous. We confess that we might not be the right kinds of people. We confess that when you come, you might expose us. You might humble us. You might humiliate us. But God, we confess it's worth it. And we beckon you again to come in power. God, send your son. End this nonsense. Bring him back. Establish his rule near and far. And God, if that costs us, we're ready to bear it. Because we trust in your faithful, committed, covenant love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.